What the Beep Do You Know About Learning English is a podcast for intermediate to advanced learners of English. And some teachers might find it interesting too. The podcast aims to provide different perspectives on teaching and learning English and at the same time develop our listeners' English skills. In this episode, we interview Matt Turner from the Tefalology podcast. We talk about the importance of noticing, a conversation exchange gone wrong, and the F-bomb. Okay, let's start rioting. In this segment, we find out about our teacher's origin story or where they got their teaching superpowers from. So, Matt Turner, what the beep do you know about teaching English? Well, I guess like way back, I think I've, I first did my first teaching certificate, um, which was a CERT TESOL back in... Mm-hmm. 2006 maybe 2007 yeah okay i've got i've already gone way back to 2007 but i'll jump forward very soon um, (laughs) okay it was made mainly for practical reasons like i was doing an english degree i mean english language and creative writing and um i kind of realized quickly that in two years time i'm going to be coming out of university and i'll need a job yeah one of my university professors put me on to the uh cert tesol program that was taking place in the summer yeah, I just I felt this would be the most practical way to use my degree and kind of use my create my interest in sort of creative writing as well. I thought that would be quite mm-hmm. a good way to kind of marry my two interests, I guess. How did you find that doing that certificate was a bit of a shock to the system or you were a natural? I wasn't a natural at all. No, I don't think so. Um like I mean, even now I still remember. Like one of my teachers said, "You kind of you come across when you're teaching. You come across as a busker." <laughs> a busker <laughs> kind of and i kind of i still f- reflect on what that might mean but i think what he was kind of saying is you kind of do one thing and then you'll bring out and do something else and then you'll do something else and it's it's all a bit kind of um ramshackle i guess and it doesn't really make sense and yeah so that, that kind of stuck with me but i've come to realize that i quite like that approach to teaching to be honest so you got a bit of a busker style. You uh, bring a bit of music and juggling and stuff into the show. Oh, none of that. I mean, no. <laughs> but um, I don't know. Like, yeah, I, I guess maybe I've come come to realise that it's kind of quite a reactive form of teaching, and mm-hmm. you know, you kind of play to the audience. Yeah. So he told me that back then, and I, I, I guess I've gone through the motions of becoming a very kind of planned teacher doing a lot of planning and I've kind of I guess I've gone full circle back to being a bit more open and experimental and yeah just kind of reacting to what's going on in the class at the time I guess and with your teaching so after you did your CELTA and where where did you move on to where did you have your first teaching job well a lot of I mean a lot of the students in the class were from Japan and before I started teaching, I was, I did judo for about 10 years, I think, as a, as a child. Um, so I, I already had quite a good understanding. Well, not a good understanding. I had some understanding of um, like Japanese martial arts and actually a lot of Japanese vocabulary. Like we, we learned all the, uh, the judo moves in Japanese at the time. Okay. So yeah, I think from an early age, I had an interest in Japan and then meeting Japanese people and teaching Japanese people, I just kind of felt, well, maybe I'll go to Japan. And uh, 10 years later, I'm, I'm still here. 
So you've done the decade. Yeah, yeah. Just just hit ten years just this December. And then in in Japan, what sort of uh, teaching roles have you had there? Well, it's. I mean, I did a year of uh, conversation school, which we call Aikaiwa in in Japanese. That was my first year in Japan, and I got to teach a whole range of like ages and learner types, learner styles, um, learner needs. So that was that was a good kind of way to introduce me to life in Japan and Japanese people. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after a year, I very luckily I I got into university work through kind of a, a combination of situations, I guess, but. Um, yeah, I, I got a university job and I've been working in the university context for about eight years now, I think, teaching sort of 18, 19 year olds, a mixture of kind of general general English courses and more kind of content based courses. And for me, when I found out about, you know, you and your fellow podcasters was through the Tefology podcast. How did that all get started? I, I read your book and I think it started in a pub and then where, where did it go from there? Well, yeah, we, we, we still can't really work out how it kind of started because I'm um, like when I worked with Rob back in 2010, we, we'd have these kind of Friday afternoon lesson planning sessions mm-hmm. and we, we started recording them because it was, it was a practical way to sort of rather than take notes, we were like, let's just record this and listen back to it. We found that we enjoyed listening back to our conversations. Like we found they were quite funny just for ourselves for our own amusement really i think there was one comment that we should maybe make this into a podcast and yeah i guess that little kind of thought kind of kind of stuck with us for like the next two or three years and then we met matt uh, the other matt on the show yeah we decided to sort of make it more into a formal thing and then just yeah go ahead with the podcast project and how how did you find like doing the podcast has helped you become a better teacher? Well, it's yeah, I guess it's kept me it's kept me interested. I mean, it's kept me reading. Um, I think one problem for a lot of teachers, kind of outside of MA programs or training courses, is that they don't, or they probably don't willingly or naturally want to engage with uh, research. Mm-hmm. or they can't you know a lot of the time they don't have the access the like the academic or the institutional support so the the podcast has kind of kept me interested kind of kept me reading um and kind of kept me talking about teaching because a, a lot of teachers tend not to want want to talk about their job they kind of just want to do it go home and kind of forget about it but i think yeah the podcast has at least helped me to kind of keep interested and keep up to date with with the teaching world i guess and now you're embarking on the big uh phd is that right yeah yeah i've been i'm a year in i guess a year in okay you're already a year in how's that going i'm still kind of in the very um embryonic stages of it i guess Mm -hmm. nothing too concrete yet but um just kind of feeling around and what sort of topic or area are you looking at well, originally, like my my proposal was going to be about podcasting. Actually, how the use of podcasts can kind of connect the or kind of overcome the uh, teacher researcher divide, mm-hmm. and how it creates a kind of an interface between people working in research and maybe people that are more classroom focused, and mm-hmm. how we can kind of have these. Uh, these reflective conversations that kind of other people can listen into, engage with. 
Um, but it's, I think it's developed beyond that slightly. Um, but I'm not quite sure how yet. So that's, that's where I'm at at the moment, I guess. Okay. How many years does it take to do your PhD? Uh, my one, cause I'm doing it part time. It's going to take a minimum of five years. Okay. Yeah. yeah uh, so you, got, you still got time. You still got four more years. So yeah. That's no it. My, my, uh, my supervisor's pretty much holding me back and saying, you you take your time, basically. This first year is all about just kind of enjoying yourself and reading, you know, doing <laughs> a bit of writing, but nothing too concrete just yet. And if uh, anyone from our audience want to, you know, listen to your program or podcast, where should they go? Uh, the best place will be our website. That's kind of the home to all of our um all of our previous episodes, our archive, I guess. It's uh, teflology-podcast.com. Our second segment is called Study Tip of the Iceberg, where we find out our guests' language learning tips. So, Matt, what's the secret to English success? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, I don't think there is one, really, is there? I mean, there's, there's, there's many, perhaps. I mean, when I talk about my own learning, like Uh it's kind of be a bit creative and kind of break the rules a a little bit. Like if you get a word, if you get a new item of vocabulary, try it out as much as possible. Yeah, I I mean, we often teach students vocabulary in a kind of one context, I guess, or or the context of, of one lesson. But um, trying trying to get students to kind of bend the words and kind of shape the words to other other com- like other situations. Yeah, I just I kind of try and encourage students to kind of um, take words and kind of yeah play with them and see see if it works in a different situation and try and be a bit creative with with the language that they've got. So sort of like I suppose the core meaning of a word and then looking at all the different meaning senses connected to that word. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. I mean, the best way for me to retain vocabulary is to use it straight away. Um, and try and I try and use it five times if possible in, in different ways. And, um, for example, if I learn like three random words, I'll try and put them into like a funny sentence probably makes no sense and probably has no meaning, but I'm just trying to kind of get the words in use together and kind of just use them straight away because I, I find if I don't use it straight away, I'll, I'll lose it. You know, it's that old mantra, I guess. And with your so with your students in class, how how do you encourage them to do this? Do they do you find that they're open to these sort of ideas of you know creatively using the language? I do. I do an exercise. So like even in my reading classes, when they when there is like target vocabulary in the reading, um, we'll do kind of we'll do a fluent, a spoken fluency activity where, <laughs> for example, they have to use eight, eight or nine words in two minutes and they have to m- make sentences using all of the words in, in two minutes. And the, the person they're speaking to literally just counts the words or ticks the words off to make sure they're using the words and then just repeat again, repeat again until they've kind mm-hmm. of automatized the words maybe my students really i I get the feeling they don't like the activity but i think they kind of respect the activity and they kind of know why i'm why i'm doing it i think why do you think they don't like it because they have to kind of think on i guess think on the spot you know and 
maybe they haven't quite fully got to grips with the meaning of the word, but they're being kind of expected to kind of use the word as soon as possible. Maybe they, I think they feel a bit pressured, you know, um, but you know, that that's good. I think a little bit of pressure is good, you know, no pain, no gain, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, get them out of their comfort zone and hopefully make the experience more more memorable. So with, with your students, then what, how do you get them, do you think, to practice outside of class? Because for me, I think from, I mean, the longer I've been teaching, I think the more important I think is trying to sort of coach them what to do outside of class and what's inside the class. I don't know if that's sort of a similar experience for you or yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. So I was, I was thinking about this before I spoke to you and I think like one of the ideas I've had is kind of how, how ways that they can kind of sustain their learning. Like I remember a time when I had a group of adult learners and they had different teachers every week. My first question to them was always, what can you remember from your last class? And a lot of the time they couldn't remember anything. And that kind of, I don't know, that kind of struck me as being a bit odd. Like if you're coming to lessons, surely you're, you'll want to kind of retain something from the lesson before. So I just got into the habit of continuing to ask them, like, what can you remember from your last class? And eventually they started making notes about their classes and re- reflecting on their classes that they'd had. And yes, yeah, so I guess the take home there is to become a good note taker or find your own way of kind of documenting and using what, what you're, what you're, I guess, being introduced to in classes maybe. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's really important. I think a lot of time people just come, you know, just come to class and think that's enough. You know, I sit in my two hours of, of classes a week and that, that'll get the job done. But as, as you touched on there, it's sort of like with the, you know, that research into the forgetting curve. So like pretty much by the end of the class, you've forgotten, yeah, you know, yeah. 80% of, of what you were taught unless you actively do something with it afterwards. Definitely, yeah. Which again links into your earlier point as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. I think um another another sort of thing that I kind of tell students is to kind of like notice, like notice new words or notice areas of your own learning that you are that stand out as being unfamiliar or, or difficult. There was a guy on Japanese TV recently, a Spanish guy, a tourist, and he was cycling from the top of Japan down to the south of Japan. So his his goal was to cycle, but his his other goal was to learn at least one new word from every person he met along the way. <laughs> and I think he learned he learned like 500 words or something like that. I'm not sure if it was made up for TV or but he um but you could kind of see him in every every conversation he was having with someone, like stopping the mid sentence and saying, "What did you just say? Like, r- write that down for me." And um, and I thought that was a really nice like. I kind of want to, I tr- I tend to do that when I'm speaking to someone in Japanese. Just kind of stop the mid mid conversation and say, "What was that you said?" and try and make it a kind of a learning opportunity. I guess. I think yeah, that's a I suppose that difference between passive and active or people just watching you know mm. movies in english but not actually really doing anything with it yeah. i think you need to sort yeah. of change if students can change their mindset and you know what you're saying and like that bicycle that sounds like a really good sort of example to show in class <laughs> the guy and how mm. much language he learned just by sort of actively trying to you know find a word in each conversation he had 
And it was great because he, for all the words that he learned, there was a personal story behind each word. You know, he remembered who he, who he'd spoken to, um, what, what they talked about, you know, and he, yeah, for, I mean, for every word that he learned, there was, there was a personal kind of anecdote attached. So yeah, whether or not that kind of helped him retain the language, I, I don't know, but. So maybe you can take your students on uh, bicycle tours of <laughs> England. Yeah. <laughs> as a new, new teaching yeah. technique. Perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. That could work. Um, yeah. You mentioned Netflix. Like, yeah, that's, that's one thing I'm kind of, I've been struggling with of late, like the students kind of, they, so one, one of the things I have in my current job is the students need to kind of self report what they've been learning outside of class. Uh-huh. And a lot of them will just watch a movie with subtitles and they'll think that that's enough. So I've been trying to get them to just maybe just watch one scene, just take, take a scene from like friends, for example, and kind of, really analyze the scene like what what's the joke what's what's being said you know how's the language being used so just trying to get them to be a bit more kind of analytical with like smaller chunks of of video for example yeah yeah for sure i think encouraging students to do shorter bursts and do more with it than than just watching lots at a level that's not suitable probably probably isn't that helpful yeah sure This segment is Language Unmasked. We find out about our guests' own experiences of learning a second language. So, Matt, could you tell us a bit more about your own language learning journeys? Yeah, well, I mean, I've I've been in Japan now for 10 years. And um, to be honest, I probably haven't learned as much Japanese as maybe I should have done in that time. I'd say I've, I've... I've got enough for what I need to do, but I guess I've, I guess I've kind of fossilized, you know, I've, I've kind of stopped the language that I have hasn't really developed um, in the past mm-hmm. few years for a number of reasons. I just haven't been studying. Yeah. So I think when I first came to Japan, maybe I had two or three years of, of study and I was really studying hard. And then, um, yeah, for the past seven years or so, I haven't really studied, but I've, like I was talking about in the section before, I kind of in, informally take on new words or phrases. And my wife's Japanese, so we tend to mm. sort of dip in and out of English and Japanese as well. Um, but yeah, in terms of formal study, I haven't really done much um, for a few years now. So when you first started, did you study in the classroom? I had, yeah, I had. Um, one-to-one lessons i had like a private tutor so actually i've never studied with other people which is um actually something i should probably do to be honest (laughs) yeah i think i suppose it's good yeah another good thing to reflect on as a teacher is to study in a bit of a class situation so there's that yes i am thinking about maybe going back into the classroom and learning again and so with with your teaching and what you teach your students about English, do you sort of practice what you preach? Do you then bring those own things into your Japanese study? I mean, the things we kind of talked about before with the with the vocabulary and kind of n- noticing words and kind of trying to kind of action those words as quickly as possible. They're, they're kind of things that I do and they work for me. Going back to podcasting, you know, I learn a lot from listening to podcasts and I've, I've recently tried to get my students also listening to podcasts for their own learning and kind of turning them on to turning them on to podcasts that would be good for their learning. I'll, I'll be introducing yours as well at some point, I'm sure. Uh, cool. 
So uh, yeah, I guess that that kind of thing, like trying to find a bit of a synergy between like my myself and their learning, I guess. In this segment, we often try to find out, uh, I guess, sort of embarrassing situations or uncomfortable moments in, in learning a second language because I think our students often, you know, sometimes can get demotivated when they have a bad experience. So yeah. we can share these stories and I suppose help everyone feel a bit better about themselves. Sure. So do you have any of those types of stories in Japanese? I've got one. Are we allowed to sort of swear on this? Or, I mean, yeah, I do put like the warning thing on it so you, you can uh, <laughs> <laughs> explicit content. So for the occasional swear word, it is covered. So feel free. Well, I was so one story that came to mind straight away is I was um, having like a conversation exchange with my my wife's friend, shall we say? Yeah, my wife's friend. Yeah, we. My wife had organised that her friend wanted to practice English. I wanted to practice Japanese. So we kind of we met in a cafe and had a conversation. And um, I think one of the questions was, "What do you?" what do you want for Christmas or what, what, what did you get for Christmas? I wanted to say gloves um, in, uh-huh. in Japanese, which is a uh, te bukuro. So te means hand and mm-hmm. bukuro means, bukuro literally means bag, but um, put together handbag means glove, te bukuro. Uh-huh. But instead I said tama bukuro, which which means like the men's genitalia, like the men's <laughs> uh, men's balls, basically. <laughs> and so basically, I said, uh, yeah, tama tama bukuro, which means balls instead of glove, basically. <laughs> what did she think about that? <laughs> she found it hilarious. Like she laughed. She was a bit embarrassed, but she explained the. She well, I don't know. How, I can't even remember how she explained it. To be honest. But. <laughs> I guess I think I I think I knew what I'd said was wrong and I kind of quickly realized oh yeah that's what it means and yeah I got those words mixed up one of the most embarrassing moments for me <laughs> and also I mean a lot of time I think learning a second language is sort of finding out you know cool expressions that maybe you don't have in have in your own language do you have any sort of like fun or favorite expressions in Japanese there's one I was thinking about which is uh I'll say it in Japanese first. Saru mo ki kara ochiru, which which means even monkeys fall from trees. So so I guess that means like even everyone makes mistakes. I guess so that mm-hmm. yeah that ties into what you were saying before. Like true, even monkeys fall from trees. I, I like a good monkey idiom, so I'll have to um yeah uh, that's what I was thinking add that yeah. to my repertoire. <laughs> in its raining swear words and idioms, we find out our guests. Number one expression or swear word in English. So, Matt, what are you going to focus on today? Swear word, idiomatic expression, or a bit of everything? I mean, I guess I, I like the classic F. You know, the F word. It's so elastic. You know, it can be used for everything. You know, it, it can be used f- to intensify something, I guess, or it can be used to give an instruction to someone. And I think it's a good marker of like how fluent you are, how, how well you can use the F word, I guess. And if a student was to use the F word, what sort of context would you use it in? Well, it would be a lot more, it wouldn't be in a professional or a business-like situation. It would be more between friends, I guess. 
uh, or to someone you don't like <laughs> or to express anger, I guess. But more more likely I use it between friends, like when we're kind of talking about about stuff. In the podcast. I haven't noticed the F word come up in the podcast. We've yeah, we've not there's not been many swear words. We tend we tend to um we either take them out or we uh, we just don't swear. I don't think I, I, I'm not much of a swearer. I, I don't know. You, do you swear a lot or? Oh, just in certain contexts, I suppose. Like we said, like I suppose the F word would be more maybe in the pub and had a few beers, but I don't naturally. Yeah, let a lot of swear words fire out over the course of a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I'm not a not a big swearer to be honest, but I I think like the F word like. There's there's a book published in Japan, um, and it's mm. a whole book. It's really good, actually. It's a whole book dedicated to the F word. Like the whole book is literally about different situations where you can use the F word. Okay, then that sounds quite good, actually. So it's like English and Japanese, and it has like the usage of the F word, and then explanation in Japanese. And sent a couple of examples, a, a picture, like a little illustration to go with it, and. Um, I think the book is actually called how to how to use fuck or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. It's, but yeah, it's hilarious. I bought it for one of my friends for Christmas once. Do you ever use it in the classroom at all? No, no. I've, I think like swearing's a whole maybe you're tapping into it, but I think it's um a whole kind of untapped area or uncharted area of uh, of the cl- English classroom maybe. But I suppose it is, I mean, it is useful to get a better understanding of those words. Maybe not necessarily to use them, but just to well, understand them if you hear them, I suppose. Yeah, it's very authentic. And I, I mean, to be, to be honest, that they're the first words you learn when you're, when you're learning a foreign language. They're, they're the, when, when I was a kid, at least, like, I think I was, I was trying to learn Swedish hmm. when I was a kid. And um, they're the only words that have stuck, to be honest, the, the swear word in Swedish. <laughs> So you can still swear in, in Swedish, yeah, which yeah. is good. That's all I can do, pretty much. Our final segment in the Red Room is inspired by Twin Peaks. So, Matt, can you give us a bonus expression? And we'll speed it up or slow it down. And the first listener to decode it and leave an audio comment on the podcast will get a prize. Okay, Matt, so what is your bonus expression? Okay, so that was a bonus expression. Make sure you leave an audio comment if you think you know what it is. All right, Matt, thanks for coming on. It's been great chatting. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, I enjoyed reflecting on my learning and giving some ideas for your learning as well. And yeah, it it was great. I hope you enjoyed our fifth episode with self-certified Tefalologist Matt Turner. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and leave a comment through the Anchor app or at English Riot to have the chance of winning the prize. Also, head over to www.englishriot.com for bonus material, including how to use some of the English expressions, including the F-bomb, from this episode. Finally, Sign up for English Riot's e-newsletter, The Sledgehammer, to get access to weekly English learning tips. See you in episode 6, where we interview Fluency MC.